The decision to join a startup or a big company is not an easy one, as one has to consider many factors that go beyond just the financial side of things. In this episode, I talked to Jennifer Kim, a seasoned startup advisor with a lot of experience dealing with these kind of decisions and more. Jennifer also specializes in the people part of the startup equation, arguably one of the hardest ones. We chat about the current challenges startups encounter in the space, why it's important to build a diverse workforce, and what one individual can do to be a change maker in their company's culture. Enjoy the show. Jennifer Kim, welcome to The Work Item. It's great to be talking to you today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So Jennifer, tell us more about what you're up to these days. Yeah, I'm uh, based out of San Francisco, California. I work with startups on basically all the fun, fuzzy people stuff. So I'm you know, really happy to be working with all these cool tech companies and working on some of their cha- the hardest challenges, with the, which ends up being all the things to do with hiring, management, executive leadership, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I spend a lot of time talking to companies, teaching courses, and doing a lot of writing on those topics. Interesting. That does sound like a very challenging space because when somebody talks to me about people, to me, this is one of those things where when you're dealing with code, it's, (laughs) well, this is pun intended, it's binary, right? It's like, it's either Mm -hmm. works or it doesn't work. People, not not as easy to deal with that kind of stuff. And we'll get to that in in the podcast, but I want to just kind of start with understanding what drew you to startups specifically and to the kind of the field of entrepreneurship, because I know a lot of folks that think that the path to success is to work at big companies, big organizations. On your side, you decided to go with startups. Why is that? Careers are so varied. Everyone's going to have a different path figuring out what works for you, because there's nothing inherently wrong with working at big companies, right? There's There can be really great opportunities to learn, gain some valuable skills, and either grow in that environment or switch to something else. But for me, I've always been drawn to startups because of the both kind of the speed of, um, and the reach for impact. I think as a self-identified, you know, problem chaser, I'm just very inherently drawn to, you know, what's broken? How do I help solve it? To me, startups are some of the best environments to do that in because you're moving so quickly in a small, nimble environment. You almost can't help but end up wearing lots of different hats and the ability to see actually the impact of your work pretty quickly when you're, you know, 10 person team, 15 person team, you really can't beat it. I think that's why there's a little bit of an addictive quality to startups for, you know, those of us so inclined. That resonates with me so much because through my entire career, I worked at big companies and I always thought that it's a little slow in terms of shipping things because there's just so much process and joining a startup it's completely different because, you know, first month in and you're like, ship, 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 because we don't have time. We don't have the luxury of process. Well, you know, this is maybe a little bit like getting a little philosophy, but big companies are kind of unnatural when you really think about it, right? You know, evolutionarily speaking, maybe like in tribal societies, like that was not the way like we were evolved to operate in. So I think there's something um, really appealing for lots of people, not everyone, small environments, nimble environments like startups, because it's kind of close to being able to, you know, I don't know, like when you were a farmer or a craftsperson in middle ages making shoes, like you have to be in charge of your own business. Very different environment. I don't think they had venture capital as it is today. And I'm pretty sure they didn't have hustle culture as it is today. But I think there is something very fulfilling, appealing um, about really taking ownership of your work on end to end. And there's downsides to that too. But yeah, uh, comparing from a large environment where you literally sometimes see like a small piece of, you know, cog in the machine. To me, startups are where work can feel most fun, most human. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of downsides too, but that's the fun of it. So in startups, the highs are high and the lows are low. And for some of us, that's what we're looking for, apparently. I'm very, very eager to learn more about your take on how should one be thinking about their career when they are given the option to go with a big company or to go with a smaller startup? In your experience, what components need to go into a decision for that to be truly a decision that is made not as a guess, but maybe more of a, 
educated guess, if you will. Right. And, you know, I once again have to couch this, but it's going to really depend on your personal context. So anyone really faced with decision should take lots of different perspectives, whether it's friends, mentors, um, and not just, you know, random podcasters who don't know your exact story. But I do think startups are really fantastic. If you are someone who is really eager to prove yourself to really, um, take on responsibilities and challenges that you may have to wait a longer time for in a larger environment. You know, the larger company, while there are plenty of things that are helpful, like resourcing and structure, you know, inherently the way like opportunities are organized there is like not everyone that raises their hand, not everyone who wants to get promoted can get promoted. So a little bit of like career management in a larger company context can be how do I do the thing that gets me promoted as opposed to how do I do the thing that actually adds more value that should get me promoted? And I think what's great about startups is that if you've been feeling kind of burned about the, the big company dynamic, like, well, a startup is one environment where you can kind of remove some of those layers because you will be so much closer to the actual impact and not to mention the, the relationships that you can build. You know, some of the friends that I gathered and working in in the trenches of startups, I really feel like are going to be friends for life. And that's something that's a little bit harder to create in a big company environment. For sure. And especially that mentality shift that you're describing is very, very astute that do I do this to get promoted versus do I do this for my company to survive? Because the bets are so different. At a big company, you have a lot of funding. Your team is more or less safe. How does one determine, okay, so all things being equal, like they they can take the risk to go either for a big company or a small company. Are there any things that they need to look for, again, coming from your experience, that might be red flags that mm, maybe you should reconsider that, that opportunity or because again, they can be different from big companies or startups? Yeah, I mean, so I'm very biased in that I do think um, the experience you get as an employee, it's it's kind of going for a little bit of renaissance right now in the startup space. So it used to be just as long as you have a great product, you're going to have a successful company and, you know, like rocket ship from here on out. And then maybe it became all about kind of like the sales and growth and marketing machine. So for a very long time, startups didn't necessarily feel like they, you know, they, they didn't necessarily have the impetus for okay, you also need to make your organization a great place to work. You also need to build up kind of like these muscles um, in terms of like, just like how you're working on product or growth. You need to also work on the policy side, the management side, the culture side. So I think we're at a really interesting point where um, I do think a lot of like these new generations of founders and lots of employees have way higher expectations for what they're looking for in a workplace. I don't think people are unreasonable. I think you know, generally speaking, if people are interested in early stage startups, hopefully they know that you're not going to have the same perks and benefits and built out structure. But the trade-offs are hopefully what you're excited by, which is you might not necessarily have everything spelled out. You might not have all these like sweet benefits catered to you, but you get to help frame that. You get to be part of the decision making. You get to help really shape a culture as like, you know, being the first hundredth employee is a very different experience than the first 10,000th employee. I think if people have an interest and because it is inherently quote risky, though I actually kind of challenge that notion, you know, the earlier you can take those risks, generally the better. So truly all things being equal, I think, yeah, if you feel the inkling, if you feel the itch to really go prove yourself in a startup, you should try it earlier than later because you don't want to be regretting not taking that risk earlier in your career when you had a lot more flexible, uh, flexibility, freedom, and know that you can always get out. You can always switch as long as you're working on, you know, valuable skills, whatever function that is in, you will have jobs. Like companies will always be getting started. Companies will always need talent. So you don't ever have to feel stuck in it. So knowing that hopefully that makes kind of the, the risk factor a little bit easier. So basically, if you love ambiguity, if you <laughs> love learning fast, startups are for you. Yeah, that's my personal bias. But if you identify with those things, what are you going to lose from just trying it out? At least you'll know more about yourself, even if you end up finding out startups are not for you. Absolutely. Always keep it open for options. 
But speaking of learning, I want to jump back a little bit to your personal experiences and how did you gain experience and knowledge about building teams, scaling inclusion efforts, and design thinking? Because if, again, just as we talked earlier, if we're thinking about purely engineering topics, that part, you know, there's tutorials, you can start building websites. When it comes to something like inclusion, that feels like it's a little bit more opaque. There's no path that somebody carved out already. What was your journey like? Yeah, and you know, the parallels and contrast to engineering are really interesting because you wouldn't necessarily expect, you know, a first-time junior coder to like go build a, you know, entire system from scratch. Just like with any skill, you scope out projects and you start a little bit at a time, really building on the foundations until you feel you know, the confidence and the experience to go do bigger things. I, I do think the people off space, it's very similar. Um, it's just that we don't have necessarily like clear yes and no answers. Like I wish I would get like error messages <laughs> in my work. They don't happen very often. Um, but, you know, I started out in recruiting and I'm still passionate about it to this day because it is such a key entry level point to every people work that, you know, happens under a company's roof. And I, you know, spent some time really grinding, doing the being on phone calls, uh, you know, seven calls every day, giving the pitch, getting really efficient at learning how to ask good questions, listen, so that you start just gathering a lot of data. And then you get to start a sense of, you know, patterns and intuition. Then I started realizing, um, you know, how inefficient the really recruiting all of this is, how critical it is for every single organization. Because you ask any startup or any organization, like, what's so important? You know, what's the thing that's keeping you up at night? And all the leaders will say hiring. And yet the solutions are so lacking. So I think for me, kind of tying some themes together, it's because I was able to really start from, you know, the nitty gritty, like being on these boring phone calls, <laughs> you know, 30 minutes kind of like feeding myself with candidates, but also being a problem seeker and problem solver while I'm doing this, you know, fairly labor intensive work, I'm seeing all my executives that I'm working with, like that's their always biggest challenge. So realizing that you know, there has to be better solutions. And that's honestly why I was led to uh, one of the previous startups I worked at, which was hiring software, which is at Lever building ATS, applicant tracking systems. I was there for, you know, almost four years. And yeah, even there, I got to do a lot more pattern matching around like, okay, like I'm working with our customers. Here are the challenges that they're working with. Here are their biggest problems, complaints. We were working with, you know, Lyft when there were 80 people, Affirm when there were 12 people, Amplitude, you know, all these like, you know, unicorns, IPO'd uh, companies now that were really tiny. And for me, I sort of started gathering a lot of information, community around, okay, clearly we are starting to all realize collectively that hiring is really, really important, that you can't just take it for granted. We got a bunch of funding, so people should be jumping uh, you know, down their throats to work with us, you have to also learn how to become an organization that can provide a great employee experience, that can really run a hiring process um, efficiently and smoothly. So it really is a balance between the big picture, but also being able to talk to individuals. Like under, when you talk to a candidate, can you actually use active listening skills to understand their motivations? Can you persuade them to take a your job offer, which might be less, probably less money than whatever the big companies are offering? If you can do that and you learn how to do that at scale, I think that's really where great people ops culture work comes from. So I hear that it's very hands-on. You have to practice. How long did it take you to become comfortable making decisions in the space and recommendations and observing, you know, the gaps and how to address them? You know, admittedly, actually, it took me quite a long time. I think when I was the first time head of people, I actually didn't know I was good at my job, which sounds like a weird thing to say. But maybe like unlike engineering where, you know, you code away and you ship it and either works or not, or, you know, you took down fraud and everyone's like on fire. Um, with people work, some of the results are one, kind of like what you were mentioning, like less clear, but also two, they just take a longer time. 
So some of the work that I was doing at my previous startup, you know, I'd be investing in, let's say, like employer branding content, like really doing a lot of storytelling, creating a lot of blog posts that really tell the inside stories of what's it like to work here, you know, who are the people, what are our values, and you publish this and I don't really know if anyone's reading it, but it really took like a year or two for me to start hearing, you know, first slowly, but then now kind of in a torrent to the point where I was getting like weekly messages from candidates, from people that are saying like, oh my gosh, I love this blog so much. It gives me a lot of hope. You know, it's really inspiring. And it just really made me think about how this work, uh, we do operate on a different timeline and different kind of principles than technical engineering. So it's been a, actually, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm appreciative of the question because it's making me really reflect on how it took me quite a bit of time to get gain confidence in my own work as well. I think that's pretty normal in the space. Which is that eternal challenge of when do you know that you're good enough at your job? And it can take such a long time. And I don't know about you. I feel imposter syndrome all the time. Even though I've been in the industry for years now, it's still sometimes you talk to people and you realize like, wow, I know nothing. <laughs> I don't think that ever goes away, does it? Well, you know, that's really interesting because I think we're talking about, we're coming, we're coming from worlds where the, these functions are actually really broad. You know, I don't know the details of technical engineering, but I know enough. Um, and I know um, enough about people ops. But it's it's a world that has so many kind of like subspecialties, like literally people can get really specific on what they do and that's all they do. It's like compensation for this level of this industry, like that's their full-time job. Um, so something I have to accept is that I will not, I will never be the expert on let's say like California employment law. And if you are, let's say someone who's interested in like, yeah, working at startups and a people ops role, and you can make infinite excuses for like, well, I don't think I'm qualified because I don't know employment law. And I can say like, cool, neither do I. But that's why I can work with hopefully someone who is when questions come up, someone who can really advise me. But if we are, yeah, qualifying, you know, feeling like we're confident enough to know what we're doing based on what we don't know, that's a game that you can play infinitely. So what is important instead it's figuring out what your focus is, like of all the different specialties, what do you want to actually make your niche? And for me, it's been early stage startups. That's why I do everything. But still, there will always be elements that I rely on other experts for. And that's a hard thing to accept sometimes. Like I'm just <laughs> not gonna know everything about this area. And that's that's okay. That That's cool. I do want to Zero in on another aspect of this. As we're talking about learning, culture, people ops, you mentioned something that stuck out to me is the fact that when you're joining a startup, at especially an early stage startup, you have the ability to shape the culture of that startup and how it goes. As a seasoned startup advisor, what does it take to build a startup culture? Because that's Yet another area that to me seems very opaque because like, well, what is culture even, right? How do you see that? Well, it's funny you ask it in that way because in some ways culture, it's like, you know, the parallel about um, trying to see the air that you're breathing. Culture is the environment in which decisions get made collectively as a, as a group of some kind. You believe these things, you value certain things. So when it comes to early stage startups and culture, I think it's really interesting because it is one of the rare opportunities where you get to shape it really actively. There is a little bit of a tension here though, in that inherently some of it will be top down, by which I mean, there's a quote out there that says, you know, a company's culture is 80% the founders like personalities. It can't help it. You know, that's just kind of how power works. Um, I have a tweet out there that I wrote previously about how when you're in a small startup, the kind of like the individual founders, like quirky personalities, um, they're just kind of like, oh, that's just like a thing that we do. And of course, that's the thing that gets scaled massively as you you know grow up to 100 people, 500 people and so on. And that just actually gets integrated into the culture in ways that people don't usually intend but you're just like, oh, this weird habit that our CEO has. And now like we all have some form of it because now it's built into the culture. 
At the same time, the tension between that um, also bottoms up, which is I do think early employees, the team will end up shaping a lot of the culture as well. You know, I love talking about founder psychology and entrepreneurship psychology because it definitely takes a special person to do kind of like the statistically um, insane thing of starting a startup and wanting to put yourself through that. But you are driven enough, you believe in some idea enough to want to like really go for that challenge. Those people tend to be like, yeah, usually, you know, very driven, um, independent, very hardworking. And for many founders, the journey to really not just working as like a like a hero, like a, like a lone genius model, to really transitioning into learning how to work effectively as a leader, which involves Hiring people that are very different than you, but they bring in complementary skill sets. They bring in different perspectives. You have to learn how to really um, take input that you probably weren't doing otherwise. So I do think just like how we make, you know, executive hiring. And then after a while, even if that's what the founder used to do themselves, you start trusting that person. Each person will end up having an effect on the culture. And I think the best leaders are the ones who can actually be open and integrate what is new and useful and actually strengthens the team as a complementary force while still doing some careful curation and editing to preserve what made your company special in the first place. So given that so much weight is given to the importance of founders establishing the right patterns and behaviors, what are the odds somebody coming into a startup of them changing that or driving some level of change versus that top down, no, we do it this way, you don't matter? How, how does one <laughs> reconcile with that? I mean, it's funny because that actually was my story in that, you know, I think the founders of Lever were really gracious in being very open about, you know, Jen was the first person to come in with actual recruiting experience. <laughs> no one else had um, like hands-on experience prior to me. And really shaping uh, the company in ways that are a little bit you know, unusual in terms of like the size of impact. I do think it's possible. And I do think a lot of it is like the lucky marriage between founders who are available and open and excited about that kind of um, integration. Um, not all founders are going to be, actually many founders. Um, maybe this is what gives them a lot of their strengths uh, are a little bit heavier on wanting control. <laughs> so some new person comes in having suggestions from perspectives, not all that will be welcomed. And I would say for people who are interested in that kind of impact, that's just information. You can actually you know try to poke around a little bit in the interview process, ask other employees, and at the end of the day, you can try to figure out, are you really working in part, the, the right kind of partnership that you want? And if the answer ends up being no, you can go find somewhere else. Maybe you end up going to build your own company. That's okay. I think there's a way that all of us who care about competency and work and impact, you know, it's very easy to feel attached to our jobs very quickly. And I can appreciate that as a former workaholic myself, <laughs> someone who cares a lot about our career and work. But something that I think we're all um, starting to slowly realize is just how much power workers have and just how much companies need you more than you need them. If you're not in the right place, as long as you're working on the skills, um, you will be happily, hopefully, welcomed by somewhere where they do want to have that partnership with you. So it's understanding that you have self-worth to the company, you provide value. I have a number of questions that kind of stem from it. In one of your recent tweets, you actually mentioned that in a hyper-growth environment, which in this case, a lot of startups are, yep. deriving self-worth from being kind of the problem solver is not necessarily scalable. Like it doesn't work. Why is that? And this is, is one of those tweets that, you know, come from personal experience, for sure, as, uh, as well as lots of people around me. So it's one of those things that's not entirely all bad. I do think it can be a very helpful thing. For me, a lot of my professional confidence does come from having, you know, performed well on the job and being rewarded for it. The reason it's not sustainable is that in a hyper growth environment, 
growth is inherently just like unnatural, right? Like companies, when they're exponentially scaling, cool, <laughs> great for investors, for our psychology, for our bodies, for, you know, like the limitations of humans, no matter how much we try to deny it, those don't things actually, those, those two don't actually align. So if you are building a lot of your self-confidence based on, you know, like, oh, everyone knows that person as like the person to go to questions with, you keep getting promoted, can be really fantastic in the short term. It's just that in that hyper growth environment, you will literally just not be able to keep up with the growth. And that has nothing to do with your, you know, you're just not strong enough. You don't know enough. Like, no, no human could. So I think that is a level of conversation that's really missing in a lot of kind of like tech careers. Um, we expect our bodies and our health to scale like technical machines do. And we keep being surprised that we're an industry that burns people out like crazy, you know, just like any kind of like motivation. There's the intrinsic kind and the extrinsic kind. So intrinsic is when you have like authentic, grounded self-worth, knowing who you are, um, knowing that you have value and that it can't really be shaken by external factors. But deriving self-worth based on, you know, what title you have, how much equity you have in some company, whatever brand of VC funded sneakers you're wearing, the latest fad, um, those things are ultimately outside of your control. You just, you know, something could happen, which means you don't want your self-worth dependent on things that you just ultimately can control. That makes so much sense. And hearing that out loud sounds like one of those very obvious things, right? Like just pace yourself, understand that your value comes not from things, but from who you are as a person. And yet so many people somehow ignore that. You think that it's it's very easy to get caught in that rat race of just like, no, 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 I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to be the one that doesn't sleep and works 24-7. Somehow it's still endemic. Well, yeah, there's a couple of things going on here, right? Where there's, I try not to take it for granted what a privilege it is to work in tech, how much power, prestige, money, impact that is, again, when we really stop and think about it, is unnatural, <laughs> Very exciting, don't get me wrong, but a little bit unnatural. Um, so of course we can't help but play these like comparison games. You know, my friend that works at this company that raised this bonkers amount of money and you know gets this title promotion and now they drive this fancy car. And of course we start thinking like, why don't I have those things? Um, and it's hard, way harder to compare um, what you have that others don't or what you wish you had and you do now, but you forgot about how badly you wanted to be in this place currently. So some of it is just general kind of like career life existential. <laughs> we are as social animals, comparison is kind of built into our DNA. But I do think there's a special challenge in the tech industry as well. So I, I, I do hope that we can have more conversations about this openly. Um, it's not necessarily the the DNA of tech industry where you know we're very used to thinking and talking in facts and figures and systems, but I'm I'm hopeful that we can collectively be a lot more open about some of the more psychological and dare I say, maybe even spiritual challenges. What do you think stops the industry today in the shape that it's in from having that open conversation? Because it seems to be the analogy of a almost kind of like a something like a pot that keeps boiling and it's about to boil over because combined with just so many factors around us like COVID hit everyone was working from home mm -hmm. and there's the stress from work and the stress from childcare and education and everything else what would it take for the industry to kind of be more open about those kind of conversations you know, I'm actually fairly optimistic in some ways about this because we are just seeing some really interesting pushing from um, the younger generations. So the millennial generation and especially Gen Z, a lot of them are kind of taking what has been standard corporate culture for a very long time. And as a group, just being like, nah, <laughs> no, thank you. In a way that it makes, you know, Gen X boomers and go like, oh, wait, what? <laughs> I didn't know you could do that. Was that an option? Because for them, it wasn't. And collectively, 
companies are going to need talent no matter what. So the fact that these new generations are kind of just like rejecting what is being offered as um, careers and employment opportunities, it's really going to force a change. Well, so it's going to force a change in that some companies will look at the writing on the wall, look at the changing values, the political climate, the landscape, and decide, oh, we really have to get our you know stuff together. And we have to offer something that is more attractive to our audience. Or we can be in denial about it, being like, oh, why aren't these kids more grateful just to have health insurance? And be surprised that you're not getting the top quality candidates that you're expecting. In that domain, the topic that comes up more often from folks that I talk to is career development, because you're mm -hmm. absolutely right. There is this stark contrast between the boomer generation where you have the company loyalty you worked for, this automaker for 40 years, and you expect to work for them for the, until you retire. Nowadays, that's kind of no longer the case yeah. anywhere, and especially in tech. Because the way to get a better salary, the way to get better benefits, the way to learn more is switch companies. Yep. And people do that fairly comfortably. Like there's no, it's not a taboo subject anymore. It's like, oh, should I switch the company or not? How should one, from your vantage point, see this process of career development in the modern world? Like, are there any specific approaches, principles they should consider as they're thinking about their long-term career in this ever-evolving industry? So I would take that question and kind of intersect it with leadership. So the, the effect that you're describing is what people are doing in response to these trends, or maybe the, the correct term would be like the lack of changes and adaptation from companies. So if you are an ambitious person who wants to solve problems and have an impact, you can also look at this and realize, okay, if I want to have an impact on the world, I probably will need to work with other humans. Like unless I am truly just like a genius who can do everything by themselves, then, you know, good for you. <laughs> Please tell me your secrets. Um, you're probably going to be working with people. So that's what I mean by, I think, you know, leadership skills, organization skills are really going to come ahead in terms of importance, validity um, to technical skills or growth and kind of like sales and marketing and brand skills. It feels like to me, I've been banging this drum for you know quite a bit of time, so um, maybe it doesn't feel new to me, but there's something around how as an industry, we've actually been, I think, rejecting that point of view, right? Like HR doesn't matter. We'll worry about it later when we're 200 people, when we're big enough so I can hire someone to worry about this for me. But whether you're a founder or a leader, that is no longer a luxury. You just cannot have that mindset because people have higher standards now. People have more choices. They will not put up with leaders not adapting to the current situation. So you can, again, like hold on to the old way and be confused why you have a hard time hiring and retaining talent, or you can choose to take this upon yourself as a leadership opportunity. And that shows up in lots of different forms. Um, you know, personal growth, getting coaching, starting therapy, all of that can be, you know, feedback, communication styles. Um, you learn it just like you do any other skill. It's just that we've always been a little bit suspicious of it because it feels a little bit fuzzy. One of the areas that you are teaching startups about is hiring. Why does hiring suck today? What's the deal <laughs> with hiring? What's the deal with hiring? Oh, how many hours do we have? Because um, I am pretty sure I could write a book on this at some point. Uh, now. Um you know, I can break that down into a few different layers. We can talk about like yeah, why hiring is broken everywhere. We can talk about why hiring is broken in tech, uh, or we could talk about how hiring is broken in startups. But maybe for this particular segment, I'll talk about really like that tech environment. Um, so we've been talking about this a little bit, but we're an industry that just does not know actually how to value people yet. And we can go into lots of reasons why, um, because we have found a lot of success in building tools, creating impact, building careers, and so on. And until very recently, it doesn't feel like 
being good at things like hiring was like a necessity to really um, standing out and achieving all the things you want to do. That world is gone. This world that we are living in today and will forever live on is, you know, when we talk about, when we think about like tech industry, let's say like 20, 30 years ago, it, w- it did not have a level of competition that it just simply does today. Because, and this is a good thing, it's so much easier to start companies. Information, um, resourcing is, funding is just like so much more available where the opportunity level was has far ways to go in getting truly leveled. We can have somewhere, someone from, you know, some far corners of the world building a tool that can compete with something that, you know, some Stanford uh, educated engineer can also build from their bedroom. So what does that mean when the world's been kind of like opened up like this? It's no longer just going to be about who can, you know, <laughs> write code the best. Like that, that is going to be a given. That is a way more common skill um, today than it used to be 20, 30 years ago. So really the advantage will come from how can you scale your impact? How can you grow? And hiring is going to be such an important part because, you know, I like how this conversation is. We're weaving in a few different themes. Uh, we keep coming back to it, but the level of impact that one person can have when they're just, you know, writing code is one thing. But if you're really hungry for the level of impact that, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are, it's going to involve other people. But if you're coming at it from kind of like a, but I've been a star coder forever and my brain just works this way better, you're like, cool, bro. Um, Love that for you, but you're also going to have to learn how to stretch your brain in new ways in this um, new space. So it's the myth of that 10x engineer doesn't quite hold up to the reality, and especially the reality where talent now is accessible everywhere. I think so much of our entrepreneurship culture is still rooted in kind of like the the myth of the lone genius. We think of these like at this point, almost mythological figures like Mark Zuckerberg, who, you know, coded Facebook from his dorm room. And the narrative that is a lot less succinct, but probably a lot more accurate, is that behind every company's success that you see are, you know, hundreds, often thousands of people that were quietly toiling away, really doing things together, figuring out together. But that's not as a, of a sexy narrative, right? So we really push forward the story that it was like this genius person. It's just not a re- accurate representation of reality. And the more we, I think, reconcile that difference and adapt how we approach work to it, the more we are set up for actually building healthy, impactful organizations instead of kind of chasing the the glory, the ego feeding, like, but I want to be in charge. One of those areas that kind of we we talked about is when when it comes to building that culture and bringing this awareness of these both challenges and the aspects of how you should hire it seems that it would be very very hard to well make that change instant or well it's impossible to make that change instant from what we talked about in your career in your experience when you work with startups how do you What's your approach to convincing them of the value of this kind of thinking, that they should be paying attention to this, that they should be acting on this, and it's not something that can be deferred? Because you're absolutely right. I've heard that narrative before where folks think, you know, people, yeah, whatever, we're going to figure this out. We have a product to build, right? Like that's the focus. But then just so much stuff gets missed. How do you bring in that importance, the urgency and the kind of immediate benefit that it will yield to the company by by paying attention to this? Yeah, that's uh, a really good question. And I, there's a few different layers I can kind of take there. Well, first of all, we I am actually starting to see the changes now in that even let's say like five years ago, early stage startups were often waiting until there were 50, 100 people just, you know, hire like a a first people person. Up until then, everything would just be like chaotic and you'll everyone would be like, oh, well, that's just how we how it goes. Um, I did start to see a shift happening a few years ago to the point that nowadays, it's actually very common for me to hear from startups that are 10 people, maybe even less, 
coming to me to say, you know, we really care about this work. We know that this is something we have to get right from the beginning. So we want to hire someone like a chief of staff, uh, you know, a, a first recruiter um, to help us with this early on. So that is a, actually a very fast turnaround, I think, in a relative short amount of time. Because while the, the impact of the work might be sometimes slow, some of it is that as leaders, the biggest blocker is you deciding to prioritize it. Headcount is one of those things that is under your control. And if you are choosing to wait to make you know room for someone really in charge of like the people culture, the people processes until 100, that is a decision that you made as opposed to doing it um, when you are 20. So that's one thing. Two, you asked, um, how do you convince people? I actually don't. Uh, I personally, and this is my approach, others might work differently. I just don't believe in convincing people who probably at some point, you know, I'll put it this way. I just don't have time to convince people who don't actually want to be convinced. So I think my approach has been, you know, I do a lot of writing for this reason because I talk a lot about here is what successful people ops looks like. Here are the common traps that we all need to kind of like rise above. And for people who's, um, who are resonating with that, they'll approach me in wanting to work with me and I'm excited to partner with them. But if someone reads the same thing that I'm saying, they're just like, what is she talking about? I'm like, okay. <laughs> Hey, bro, your funeral. So like a good example of this might be diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's what, you know, gets a really very commonly uh, misunderstood because it is hard. I, I will acknowledge that it is hard for an early stage startup to be like perfectly diverse and representative of the world because we are starting from small groups. You know, not everyone is ready or equipped or funded, um, funded, you know, to be a founder. And that's not necessarily with uh, ability. That's just like the world that we live in, the, the type of like entrepreneurship risk. Not everyone equally is given the opportunity. So when we already have a pretty homogeneous group of founders, early stage hiring is going to inherently depend on their personal networks and where they come from. So it's a little bit, un, you know, I, I do think unreasonable to expect, like, I can't believe that company doesn't have, you know, perfect gender balance and equilibrium of like racial diversity and all these different things. So it's not about getting graded on how good you are at diversity and equity inclusion, though, you know, there's some element of accountability, of course. It's more about as an early stage startup, do you understand that part of your job of building a great company is building a company that can really, you know, be nimble and take in different perspectives and be good at lots of different things, not just like the one thing, because you have multiple functions that you really have to nail as you build an organization. Okay, so if you value that, diversity is the most effective way to achieve that. And I think talking up, framing diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, when I have people talk about the best environments they've ever been um, part of, they usually end up describing diversity of some kind, that people were able to, you know, come from different backgrounds and really teach and learn from each other in ways that felt open, that actually allowed communication, that homogeneous environments don't, because um, there are different approaches to information sharing, hierarchy, problem solving. So what I try to do in my work is show that. And if that is what people want to do, I am happy to continue, you know, like open sourcing my work and producing the content and partnering. But I just don't have time for people who are still kind of like playing at the very outdated tropes around but why can't we just, you know, say that we're a meritocracy? And I'm like, oh, okay. I understand why that sounds good in theory. It's just that believing that you're meritocratic is actually proven to be correlated with worse performance and actually like not being able to make decisions and, you know, 
perform at the highest level function. The term meritocracy was actually coined as a like as, as a satire. It was supposed to be a satirical term of like believing you can do it. And there's a way that you know maybe it's our idealism in the tech industry, but uh, thinking that we can do it because we can just compress complexities of like you know human systems into like, but who is the best at this? It's like those physics problems in college when you think that in an ideal environment, if you right. do this, here's what it's going to act like. Completely negating the availability mm. of, and in this case, the different biases of people yeah. that assess that merit, right? It's like if you're talking to somebody and ask, what's the merit of person X? And it's this person's going to have a different opinion from another person you probably asked that worked with them. So it's it's not a... Perfect measure. I'm somewhat surprised that somehow that's a thing that is being considered as the true perfect measure, that you can actually measure merit <laughs> right. on a basis of some scale that is completely that unbiased. Right, yeah. No, and I, and I love the physics analogy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borrow that because a lot of how we talk about um, people work in culture, I, I do think it's like there's like a implicit like in a perfect environment, it should be this. But I can add on like 50 things and I'm like, cool, fun thought exercise, bro. But in reality, here's what we're not doing. And what, you know, it's by letting go of the ideal and actually like taking two people's needs into account, actually embracing the messiness, knowing that, you know, with people work, it's very hard to get things perfectly. But as long as you figure out that, you know, this is how we're growing, this is what this is what matters to us, this is how we're learning and testing each time. If that's the best you can do, great. That that is amazing. But you know, chasing this ideal, like, but our value should always be like this, and our numbers should always be like this. I'm just like, oh boy, I, I see we're still living in fantasy land. Right, and that fantasy land is oddly common, very very oddly common. Where is just that uh -huh. assumption that we just don't have any other factors than somebody deciding that it goes on a scale from zero to ten, and that's the scale for everyone. We're people. Wisely I, said. <laughs> I do also want to zero in on another fact to this, that you mentioned that diversity and inclusion, it's not just a checkbox. Because oftentimes that can be the perception externally where they think like, well, you know, we need to hire X number of women, X number of folks from uh, different backgrounds. But the reality is that it's not just about the checkbox. You're literally making your product and service better by having people from diverse backgrounds contributing to it. Have you seen any resistance to that understanding that it's actually better for you to do this than not do this? You know, what's funny, and I'm, you know, I'm biased based on the people that actually are in communication with me. Um, I'm sure there are people that look at my work, they're like, what is, what is she talking about? <laughs> and stay far away from me. Um, you know, the thing about the checklist is interesting because to me, that really reveals some kind of like motivation factor. So if you are really approaching diversity work from like, well, we need to have X number of women and X number of minorities and blah, blah, blah. Usually the, in, uh, the unspoken motivation is around like, I don't want to be criticized. I don't want someone to like put my company on blast for not being diverse enough. That is not actually what diversity, equity, and inclusion work is about, right? That's coming up from a defensive stance. Kind of like what we're talking about how, you know, at a big company, instead of adding value, you have learned how to look like you're adding value so you can get promoted. <laughs> Same thing happens. Um, so when we, I don't think it's that I've gotten resistance. I think it's more like that people feel pressured and there's a lack of kind of like foundational understanding. So when people do take, you know, some time and have the hopefully like teachers and patient like collaborators who like talk through things. I have found that even people who do uh, are maybe like skeptical a little bit initially around the ideas of diversity usually end up coming to the idea that like, wait, what diversity, equity, and inclusion when implemented effectively, the environment that it creates is the environment that I would want to work in, even if I were, you know, coming from a privileged majority place of a cisgender, let's say white dude. What DEI ends up doing is we are looking at, okay, let's look at our systems, our processes that are that have biases built into them because we live in a world that has biases and you know, different people have different experiences, not because of their merit 
but because of their backgrounds, skin color factors they can't control. So if we end up really examining, diagnosing, dismantling, and then rebuilding these systems from ground up, that actually benefits everyone. It's not about benefiting just, you know, the people of color or just the LGBTQ people. It's good for everyone. It's just that we have to take the first steps by paying attention to the needs of underrepresented groups. I think that's where a lot of folks struggle because they're like, but what about me? It's like, you will benefit from this. (laughs) You just, um, for once, will not be first. I think this is one of the important areas where you have to understand the root causes and you have to understand the ramifications instead of the surface level, oh no, it's like we have like all of a sudden this new requirement, like this is not something that is detrimental. It's not It's not a zero-sum game that all of a sudden it takes away from one part, then all, it's, it's a big loss. It is really not. No, I agree. I'm, I'm fully there with you. So we're getting to the top of the hour. Jennifer, this has been an enlightening conversation. I learned a lot from you. What is one piece of, let's put it, let's call it unconventional advice or maybe not easily discoverable advice that you'd give to someone listening to the show? You know, I think if someone is listening to your show, I would, I could make some assumptions about, you know, they probably are ambitious and they care about their work. They are career focused. And that's fantastic. Hello, my people. Um, One of you. (laughs) I do think there is a way that sometimes our career approaches can feel a little bit short term. So there's, you know, ambition can come with pressure that can serve you really well in certain situations, you know, really outperforming your peers, um, being driven and so on. It's not necessarily what's going to serve you on the long term, though. So something I talk a lot about and try to be really open about is how badly I burnt out, you know, a few years ago to the point that my brain felt broken for a very long time. You know, I was having all kinds of breakdowns in my body. And now having been, you know, a lot of therapy, a lot of healing journeys, really self-care from the other side of this, I do have like a different approach to my work and career in that, you know, careers are really long. It doesn't feel like it, but careers are really long and the world will never, ever run out of hard problems that you can work on. So if you care about impact, if you care about problem solving, some of that has to be balanced out by taking care of you and figuring out what's best for you. If you're constantly throwing yourself at problems at the cost of your kind of own health, you're not actually helping anyone. So that balance has been, for me, been a really interesting journey to really learn from a humble place. So I hope that others can feel like, you know, ambition is great, drive is great, but having that balanced out with self-care, physical health, mental health, spiritual health, all of that is really important too. And I hope people have the permission. I hope people feel the permission to go after that too. I like that. And it ties very well to the beginning of our conversation where you mentioned that we make that assumption that we can scale like the technical machines. And in reality, humans don't. Yeah, we got to let go of that. I I know it's really tempting to think of ourselves as, you know, email crushing machines. Um, That is not where we're going to be anytime soon. It doesn't work. I like that. (laughs) Jennifer, where can folks learn more about your work online if they want to follow you and continue learning on this journey? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, Jennifer Kim. I'm on Twitter, at Janet's Typing. I try to be fairly prolific about all things working in the tech industry. I'm, you know, very, uh, feel gr- very grateful to get lots of feedback about how my writing is helping folks. So if hopefully if any of this resonated at all, I hope it can help more folks. Excellent. Jennifer, thank you for being here today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me.